In 2015, I was working in research at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. Our study looked at biomarkers of Parkinson's disease. We don't know exactly what causes Parkinson's, which is a mysterious movement disorder, or really how to cure it. Together with six other centers, we had data from thousands of participants. We wanted to answer the question, who gets Parkinson's and why? I was already interested in health disparities, so I made my own mini-research question. How are Parkinson's outcomes different in minorities? So, I downloaded the data, cleaned it up in Excel, prepared to run some simple tests, and stopped. Out of the 892 eligible participants, only 39 were non-white. That's right, less than 5% of the almost 900 participants were all other minorities, including Black, Asian, Latinx, and Native. What was happening here? Was Parkinson's really just more common in white patients? Or was there something else at work? My name is Altaf Sadi, and I am a neurologist. I'm a fellow at the National Clinical Scholars Program at UCLA. What we did is we looked at how um, people who reported they had a neurologic condition used neurologic services. Dr. Sadi found that the typical patient who sees a neurologist is female, older, white, non-immigrant, having a higher education and income, and more likely to be insured and living in the Northeast. Self-identified Hispanic and Black patients were more likely to be seen in the emergency department than a neurologist's office, partially because they received fewer referrals. It doesn't help that neurological diseases are kind of hard to understand. The brain is an abstract thing. It takes years of higher education to get how you can have physical symptoms from brain issues. And of course, not all minorities have low education or health literacy levels. But if we're going to talk about disparities, this is an important one to mention that exists at the population level. Let's get back to my original question. Why don't we see more minorities in the neurologist's office? Two possible answers emerged. One, patients don't know they have a fixable problem. There's a lot to discuss here, like how health information is targeted at different populations, access to care, cultural barriers, and so on. But reason number two was the one I couldn't stop thinking about. When a patient did manage to overcome these barriers to talk about their symptoms with a doctor, that patient was less likely to be referred to a specialist if they were a minority. And that is what we're going to unpack today. It's my first year of medical school and I'm sitting in the auditorium. The lights are way too bright for the winter morning, and the taste of coffee is bitter but necessary. I'm excited. The morning lectures on Parkinson's, and I feel like I actually know something going in. Then, this slide shows up. It says, Parkinson's demographics. Africans, less than Asians, less than Caucasians. I'd memorized so many facts every day of medical school so far, but this one sat weirdly with me. I had tried to research racial disparities in Parkinson's, and I found it almost impossible to study since we hadn't enrolled enough minorities. Where was the slide's data coming from? For the rest of the day, a more troubling question grew. What else were we learning as fact that I didn't even know to question? A note before we dive in. We're going to be talking a lot about race, so we need to answer one big question. What is race? We've had to think about it a lot in this country, there have been old and new definitions. Some think it has to do with the color of your skin. Others think it depends on where your ancestors came from, or that it's a, quote, social construct. But what do those things really mean? This is something people dedicate their careers to, so we'll barely scratch the surface today. 
I'm Lundy Brown, and I'm in the Department of Pathology and Laboratory Medicine and Africana Studies. Dr. Brown is a big name in this field. When I asked how she defined race, she said that race is a social category, that it changes over time and place. What we consider racial categories in the U.S. differ from actually every other country in the world. Only 15% of countries worldwide even gather statistics by race. I asked some medical students how they defined race in patient care. They told me that there are a few standards in clinical practice or research. Sometimes the patient reports it. Sometimes providers just assume their race by looking at them. I also discovered the way we think about race in medicine has been around for less than a century. I'm Nick John Ramos. I'm a postdoctoral fellow in race and science and medicine at Brown University. Dr. Ramos told me something really interesting. He said there was a huge activist push in the 1960s that actually encouraged clinicians to look for race. They thought if doctors could notice someone's race, they could get a little mental alert that told them, hey, this patient might not have the most stable living situation or have the resources to get what they need. In other words, this patient's health might be influenced by something outside the clinic. So these activists said, you know what, we understand these processes of racialization. They show the social construction of race. And they knew it might be dangerous to paint all minorities with such a broad brush. But we have these really real concerns about how do we get medicine to people that have not gotten it before. After this, race began showing up on intake forms. In 1993, the NIH started requiring researchers to gather the race of their participants as an effort to include more minorities in research. Then, in 2000... Without a doubt, this is the most important, most wondrous map ever produced by humankind. That was President Bill Clinton. He was referring to the Human Genome Project. Suddenly, we could see the literal building blocks of every person on this planet. It unlocked a whole new world of medicine, and we've made huge strides in learning more about diseases. But with the rise of genomics also came the idea that race might actually be deeply biological, maybe even genetic. Around the same time, researchers published a groundbreaking article. They had analyzed genes from over a thousand people and found that there were six main genetic clusters. These groups basically lined up with the five geographical continents we've defined today. Pretty conclusive evidence, right? Except when Dorothy Roberts, law professor at the University of Pennsylvania, looked closer, things were not what they seemed. In her book, Fatal Invention, she writes that there was more genetic difference within these big groups than there was in between them. In fact, the researchers found six groups because they told the computer to find six groups. When they told it to find more, it could divide the thousand individuals into up to 20 groups, and in a different way each time. Again, Dr. Braun. In the U.S., when we're doing scientific studies, we use the census categories. The U.S. census categories have changed every single decade since 1790. It seems absurd to me to try to then make an argument these categories are genetically bounded. Okay, so I've told you that there is no specific gene portion or SNP that defines race or even an inherent biological difference. So what do we really mean when we say race? My name is Walter Kleiss. So I'm doing a research year in pediatric orthopedics, and one paper that I hope to write is on something called Blount's disease. Basically, as the child is growing, they have growth plates. The growth plates are potentially an area of weakness, so if you get weakness on the medial side, you get bowing outward of one or both legs. When you read about this condition, you learn that it's correlated with various risk factors, and being black is one of the correlated things with having Blount's disease. However, 
the only single risk factor that has independently been tied to Blount's disease over and over is obesity. Obesity uh, puts more force on the knee. You have this obese child pushing down uh, a lot of weight onto the knee, and therefore the knee bows outward. It fails. It makes it makes perfect sense why obesity would be a risk factor there. It doesn't make perfect sense why race would be a risk factor there. When we talk about how Blount's disease is more common in black children, what we're really saying is that obesity is more common in black children. In other words, race here isn't biology. It's standing in for something else. In this case, obesity. What Walter found wasn't unique. In all my interviews for this project, I heard race being used as a proxy for lots of different things, like culture, geography, genetics, family history, socioeconomic status, environmental exposure. The list goes on. We'll talk more about why this matters later. Lots of people still believe that race is a shorthand for biology, despite a lack of evidence. A recent study showed that a lot of medical students still believe that African-American skin feels pain differently than white skin because it has fewer nerve endings. For the record, that's definitely not true. Again, this is literally a field that people dedicate their lives to. For now, this is the short and sweet version. The U.S. Census views the racial categories as a social definition of race that is specific to this country. For the rest of this episode, when I mention race, I mean a social way of grouping that has been shaped by our history and politics. I've just talked for a while about how race is a social construct, how we shouldn't be taking the subjective measure for biological fact. And that brings us to the second half. We're all going to be doctors. The Hippocratic Oath binds us to first, do no harm. How do assumptions about race harm our patients? After all, using race has been pretty ingrained in how we talk about patients. Many doctors think race is vital for a differential diagnosis. But as I talked to students and doctors and academics, I kept hearing about patients who were hurt because of the way doctors used race. There was a story by Atul Gawande, a physician writer. The patient was a white woman who had joint pain and trouble breathing. She was diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome and put on pain medicine. She developed an opioid use disorder and lost her job. Finally, she went to a specialist who looked at her symptoms in x-ray and diagnosed her with disseminated sarcoidosis. Dr. Gawande's piece was about health insurance, but I found strong undercurrents of race here. Sarcoidosis is a disease that we are taught mainly happens in African Americans. But actually, sarcoid can happen in anyone, and does, all around the world. My name is Luam Gidey. I am a third-year OBGYN resident at Women and Infants. I am also a fellow of the newly formed BASC group here at Brown, and that stands for Brown Advocates for Social Change and Equity. Dr. Gidey told me the now infamous medical story about the young African-American girl who came to the hospital with lung problems. The clinicians couldn't figure out what was wrong. They kept treating her, but her condition didn't improve. One day, her x-ray was being evaluated by a few physicians in a pod, and as the x-ray was being hung up, another physician walked by. and Someone unrelated to the case. He saw the scan. Remember, this is one that makes everyone's skin invisible. And says, who's the kid with CF? CF, or cystic fibrosis, is often associated with being white, when really the gene is present in up to one of every 64 African Americans. Tim, a med student I spoke to, told me that our pediatric clerkship textbooks will tell us. If you have polydactyly, if you're black, you're not really supposed to do any further looking into it because apparently it's more common in black children. If you're white, you need to do a thorough genetic workup because it could be a sign of an underlying syndrome or problem. This goes beyond just individual patient care. It's even affected the guidelines we follow. Doctors take guidelines very seriously to diagnose and treat patients. 
Dr. Gaudet told me about what you do when you want to prescribe a pill for high blood pressure. If you look at the hypertension guidelines, you have to literally make a choice to give your patient different medications if they are black. I've had many, many colleagues make the blanket statement that African-American women with hypertension respond to calcium channel blockers better than anything else. Dr. Gaudet, like a lot of OBGYNs, care about high blood pressure, which can be dangerous in pregnancy to both patient and fetus. Calcium channel blockers are a class of drug studied to be superior in black patients. By now, we've talked a lot about how research and medicine poorly define race. It should come as no surprise that this study had that shortcoming as well. Calcium channel blockers are one of the first-line hypertension drugs. However, doctors usually try another drug first, an ACE inhibitor, which have some benefits that calcium channel blockers lack. So when these patients are put on a calcium channel blocker just because of their color of the skin and nothing else, I feel like we're doing them a disservice by not giving them the first-line therapy. She also told me about the cutoff to decide if a pregnant woman is anemic. Anemia is really common in pregnancy and oftentimes easily treated with an iron pill. She saw this poster hanging up in the office, and at the bottom, there's a sentence that said, If you're African-American, use this cutoff. She asked her colleagues, and no one seemed to know why. And I looked up their references, and these references are two papers from 1992, and there's not much data in them, but it's basically expert opinion that says African-American people have lower um, hemoglobin rates, so therefore our standard cutoff might not pertain to them. I want to make it clear that I believe in the power of genetics and the epidemiology of diseases. Some diseases are more prevalent in some groups, but from social or structural factors. When it is genetic, it's from a small cohort with a specifically defined ancestry or geographical boundary, though even that is becoming less relevant in an age where borders are blurring. The problem comes when we apply something that's true for a small group of people to an entire socially defined race, or when we fail to recognize that the disparities actually stem from systemic discrimination. We need race in our research and in medicine not because it's biological, but because we must recognize that racism affects health in negative ways. How can we reframe race in a way that consciously recognizes its nuances? What would medicine look like then? Those are big questions, and we're still looking for answers. In the meantime, we've covered a lot here, but what I had yet to see was how mentions of race could influence me, even when I didn't want it to. This is what happened when I started studying for step one, after the break. Step one, two words that strike a shiver of recognition into the heart of every doctor. It's the first of three exams every medical student takes for their U.S. license. The test is eight hours and covers everything you've learned in medical school. Questions could jump from the nitty-gritty of biochem pathways to big-picture treatment guidelines and tough ethical scenarios. It's a pretty big deal. What you get on this test could determine what specialty you go into, where you practice. Every student does the same thing to prepare. We read the same three books and use the same question bank of a few thousand questions. Studying is the only thing we do for weeks before the exam. As I was taking these practice tests, I noticed something troubling. Sometimes I could read the beginning of a question stem, age, sex, and yeah, race. And I would already kind of know what the answer should be. To find out if other students had felt this way, I decided to test it out. I'm going to read you a question stem, and I would like you to make your best guess on what 
the test makers might want you to make as a diagnosis. All right, so a four-year-old Asian boy comes to your clinic and he has a rash. Oh, Kawasaki's disease. Thinking yeah, yeah. of Kawasaki disease. Yeah, about Kawasaki disease. Kawasaki disease. Kawasaki. Kawasaki's disease. Kawasaki's. A seven-year-old Caucasian boy walks in with pneumonia. Cystic fibrosis. Cystic fibrosis. Cystic fibrosis. Probably cystic fibrosis. Cystic fibrosis. Or uh, cystic fibrosis. Cystic fibrosis, yeah. A 40-year-old woman comes in. She's had some tingling in her arms and legs and, like, weird vision Multiple problems. Multiple sclerosis. MS. MS. Multiple sclerosis. Yeah. MS. MS. Multiple sclerosis. A 24-year-old African-American woman who walks in to your clinic with a cough. Sarcoid. (laughs) (laughs) Sarcoidosis. Think of sarcoidosis. Sarcoidosis. Or sarcoidosis. Sarcoid. Sarcoidosis. It's sarcoid. I mean, let's just think about this for a second. A rash, a cough, pneumonia, numbness and tingling. These could be anything. And when I asked students how they knew so quickly... Here are some answers they gave me. The very first thing that I do is I read only the first half of the first sentence. Then I jump to the question, I look at the answers, and then finally, sort of near the end of my process, I read the entire question. So whatever it gives me as the patient demographics in the first five words, lump sum, make all my assumptions, jump straight forward. It very much becomes this thing where once you read the explanation, that's it. When you have limited time to read these questions, you're looking to see what exactly are these people trying to tell me. My friends and I would joke and say that we could make a second look skit about the different taglines of each question. There were definitely times when I was studying and all I would read was 35-year-old African-American female. And if the answer choice had sarcoidosis, I would just pick that because I know it would be right. To me, these shorthands go against everything we're supposed to practice in modern medicine. We spend years learning how to make a differential diagnosis or educated guesses on what a patient might have. We use symptoms, blood work, physical exams, not literally what our patients look like. People don't cough or bleed differently based on their race. We're supposed to keep our differential broad and then narrow it using clinical reasoning. When I told Dr. Ramos about the pattern recognition with the step one questions, he was visibly surprised. So race is actually supposed to move you along quicker in the test so you can actually finish the test. Wow. When we're working in a medical community that values efficiency and speed, these skills are not meant to actually have you think and consider, right? And that's problematic when most patients think the purpose at which they go to the physician is precisely to have the physician consider. He's got a point. Step one will leave us exhausted, but so will our clinic and hospital days. Part of practicing medicine is persevering and thinking critically in spite of that fatigue. Shouldn't standardized tests, which are supposed to help us synthesize information, be enforcing that too? These are diseases that are not commonly seen, especially amongst the populations that we're talking about. So one of the things that you notice is almost everyone who has sickle cell disease in step one is African American. But we know the prevalence of sickle cell disease, yes, is higher in the African-American population than it is to non-blacks in the U.S. But to think that someone who complains of fatigue and they're black and they're five years old, to include sickle cell in your top three differential would be probably pretty egregious. 
there's a lot of other things that are probably more likely going on. And I think that's sort of the issue because what you think a disease might be also affects what you're going to do for that patient down the line. And if we're taught to do no harm, you know, harm can be a physical manifestation. It could be an exam that you did unnecessarily, but it could be financial harm, ordering a test that you didn't need to do, or having a patient stay in the hospital longer, or work up some illness that really isn't there. And it's not all about diagnoses. Here's Denise, a medical student. From a preventative health standpoint, if you say Hispanic and Latinos are less likely to get a colonoscopy, you as a physician will be less likely to push those patients to get a colonoscopy. And so then those patients become more likely to have stage four cancer at presentation than other patients. And then you chalk it up to it's just more prevalent in those societies. But your behavior towards that population was modified already by previous data about whether or not they would do something that you recommended. During clinical rotations, medical students found that they were expected to keep using these shortcuts. Eventually, the association stuck. It has now been beaten into my head that a young black will make it sarcoidosis and no one else does, and that's the way that I'll think about that disease, probably as a provider for a long time. Doctors use shortcuts all the time. If someone has pneumonia, whether they're a baby or 80 years old really can affect what bacteria they were exposed to. If someone is biologically female with ovaries, they have more estrogen floating around, which can affect disease processes. I'm not saying shortcuts are bad. If we want to take care of all our patients, we have to use them. The problem is that race is already so hard to define. I mentioned earlier how people can mean lots of different things when they use race. It's an imperfect foundation on which we've built an entire framework. Seeing someone's race and assuming they have a certain disease, giving someone a different medication based on race, or even using race as a stand-in for environmental hazards or socioeconomic status, it just sounded like lazy medicine. Students told me things like this happened all the time during their rotations. Someone on their team would bring up race in a way that seemed reductive. The students wanted to say something, but how? These people were evaluating them. We will all run into situations where we don't know what to say or how to say it. There will be days we don't say anything, and other days we will speak up. As medical students, we can often feel at the bottom rung of a long ladder, but we can use our position as students in a positive way. We're expected to ask questions and learn. Starting conversations with genuine curiosity and politeness usually goes a long way. Students told me some ways they've done this. One of the easiest things is to propose the question and say, I noticed that you presented the patient in such a way or you mentioned that they are someone of a particular race. What does that mean to me as a medical student? Be like, oh, why do you say that? Or, oh, I'm curious, what, what do you mean by that? It might just be a moment that you help them sort of turn on that light. The amount of time between you being a student or a learner and you being a teacher is very, very short. As a second year, you're already teaching first years. Everything that you do is teaching someone something. Whether you choose to speak up or be silent, you're teaching something. My guess would be that it starts in the medical education. We've never really got a grasp of how to teach about race. Instead, we just take the easy route and basically make the assumption or teach that uh, race is genetically inherited. Um, board examinations have basically accommodate uh, that teaching. And I think if we challenge the way we teach, those same teachers are the ones making the boards and they can challenge the way we question those uh, concepts as well. These questions that appear on the test as a result of history and history changes. What we have now is people beginning to question what does it mean 
to always identify particular racial groups with particular diseases. What's the consequence of that? Even though we've inherited these things, we don't necessarily have to keep these things. If we understand that race was not always one thing at one moment in time, that our ideas around race can change and that we can do something about it. You know, there's a history to race and there's a history of medicine. If we put them together, what do we get? I felt inspired by everyone I had talked to, and I decided to take their advice. My name is Joseph Friedman. I'm a neurologist. Chief of the Movement Disorders Division at Butler Hospital, editor-in-chief of the Rhode Island Medical Journal, and professor at Alpert Medical School. All very impressive titles, but the last one most relevant, since Dr. Friedman was the one that gave the lecture on Parkinson's disease. We talked about Parkinson's and about race. He agreed that cultural and educational barriers probably contributed to the apparently low prevalence of Parkinson's in minorities. Right. I think the disparities in general have to do with socioeconomic things and and racial bias. We also talked about genes. There have been some genes weakly linked to Parkinson's, but nothing conclusive. We both agreed that generalizing findings to large ethnic groups was irresponsible because there are such large differences within them. But then he said he put in the slide about Caucasians having more Parkinson's than Asians and Africans. To indicate that there are probably genetic explanations for that. To be honest with you, I felt a little confused by our conversation. I felt like we were going around in circles, agreeing and disagreeing on what I thought were the same things. At one point, he turned the question back on me. You know, I, ha- I have a slide. It does say, like, Africans less than Asians, less than Caucasians, right, right. which are huge ethnic groups. Um, That's true. And so then you mentioned that you put it in there to infer genetic correlation. But then when we discuss it further, it doesn't seem like you believe that there is one in research or if there is one, it might be related to a specific ethnic group within one of these larger ones. Well, it's an interesting sense. point, I have to say. Let me ask you a question, Okay. Do you think that lecture would be better without that slide and without the, without stating that? I think that it would be important to state only because it is clinically apparent, but the reasons behind it might be environmental rather than genetic. No, I, I agree with that. I agree with that completely. You know, in general, when we hear about diseases... We hear about distribution of diseases, and this is a way of describing the distribution of the disease. Is it important? Um, It may not be. I didn't walk away feeling great. I had no idea how he took our conversation. The next day, I received an email. It said, well, maybe I should just read it to you. It's pretty short, as in, the whole thing was in the subject line. It read, I have deleted my slide on PD demographic prevalence. Thank you. Above all, our own actions speak loudest. If we can lead by example, by not including race in our presentation, by using hard data to debunk race-based medicine, if we truly think about how a patient's perceived race can harm their health and how racism interacts with medicine, and if we continue to learn and question our own biases, then... I think medicine can move in the right direction, starting with us. This episode was edited, produced, and narrated by me, Angela Zhang. I'm a medical student at Alport Medical School, Brown University. I want to thank everyone who agreed to be interviewed for this episode. That includes Dr. Lundy Braun, Dr. Nick Ramos, Dr. Nuam Gadeh, Dr. Altaf Sadi, and Dr. Joseph Friedman. I also want to thank all the medical students, some who are now awesome residents, that share their wisdom and insight with me. 
Thanks to Ruben Baker, Cassandra Duarte, Kristen Durbin, Josh Johnson, Walter Kleiss, Denise Marte, Jeremy Mudd, Tim Pion, and Alan Sierra. Thanks to my friend Tracy Gold for letting me use the fabulous recording space at University of Baltimore. Dr. Julie Roth is a great mentor and podcast producer herself. Go check out our work on neurology and pregnancy on neurostories.com. I'm really grateful to AMS for being a place that not only allows but encourages conversations, which are difficult but important to have. Finally, the music is from the Free Music Archives, with pieces by Lee Rosevier, Kevin McLeod, and Chris Sabrisky. Thanks for listening.